Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Police officers against corrupt departments and inmates against unimaginably violent prison systems. I've taken on several, he's taken on several governors and even the president. He's helped committed, he's helped committed couples achieve equal equality in marriage before the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of Oberfell versus Hodges. That's a mouthful. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> and he proudly represents immigrants and refugees seeking a better life through America's promise of liberty and justice for all. Hi, Clarence and Roberta. Thank well, you for having me on. Yeah, oh, we have one you. more little item to mention, and, and we did not mention that Dan is running for Indiana's 9th Congressional District, often we are referred to by those local residents as the Bloody Ninth. This congressional seat is currently held by Trey Hollingsworth, and we have invited candidate Dan Cannon to come on this evening to discuss his candidacy. Attorney Cannon, welcome to Bring It On. Thanks very much for having me. Um, I, I must admit that we were talking before we went on, and uh, I was just interested in how many candidates are in the race. And you mentioned, I was thinking maybe three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's, it's becoming a crowded field. It's becoming a crowded field. And I think it speaks to, you know, the energy that's in the district. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a good thing for, you know, it's going to be a grueling primary, obviously, but it's a good thing for democracy. People are excited. And when you go out in the district, even in the, in, in the you know, outside of Bloomington, even, right, you know, in the rural counties, um, people are excited. They're, they're, they're fired up. People that have never been excited about politics ever before um, have been motivated to put together activist groups to start calling the representatives every day to, you know, have weekly, monthly, biweekly meetings, whatever. Um, but people are getting more and more politically involved. And I think it's, it's a very good thing for our district. It's a very good thing for our country. It's a very good thing for American democracy. In your own words, on your webpage, which is Dan Cannon for Congress, you have a voice. You state that Indiana's 9th District needs someone who isn't afraid to speak out against corruption in Washington and in big business. And Indiana needs someone who will be a voice in Congress for everyone, not just a select few. And you mentioned that you spent your entire life providing a voice to the voiceless. And throughout your career, you represented hundreds of individuals, workers, minorities, students, veterans, police officers, inmates, children, senior citizens, refugees, and more against powerful corporate and government interests. And you're indicating that now I'm ready to run and represent you in Congress. And you do state that we may not agree on every issue, but your pledge is that you will listen uh, to everyone and you'll carry their concerns back to Washington. And above all, you'll, make, you'll help make our voices heard. What was the straw, the proverbial straw, that, that drove you to throw your hat in the ring? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, look, I've been involved in uh, social justice issues and civil rights and uh, in some capacity or another for a long time. You know, my whole career has been dedicated to uh, representing people in and around the district, you know, the people I grew up with, my friends and family, um, taking care of people the best way I know how. 
uh, you know, finding people and solving their problems. And I think, you know, just like I was talking about before, 2016, the elections of 2016 were sort of a, a, a catalyst for a lot of people to begin their activist careers. They were a wake-up call for a lot of people who haven't been politically engaged in the past. And for those of us who have been politically engaged, for those of us who have been involved in social justice, for those of us who have been, uh, you know, sort of on the front lines um, of, of civil rights issues, it was a call to arms in the sense that um, it, it was, I think that it demanded of us that we do more, right? Mm-hmm. That, we, that we step up um, and that we do more because we recognize, and I don't think it's melodramatic or hyperbolic to say this, but I think we recognize that American democracy is in crisis. It's genuinely in crisis following the elections of 2016. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was a matter of sitting around for about a month or two and thinking, well, what can I do, you know, to do more than I have been doing? Um, and this was something I could do. You know, I, I think of Trey Hollingsworth, who um, uh, did win the seat. And a question might be posed by some listeners, well, why should I vote for you rather than give the nod to Trey Hollingsworth? Well, there's a lot of reasons why you should vote for me over Trey Hollingsworth. I mean, we differ on nearly every single policy point that you can imagine to the extent that you can discern any policy point that Mr. Hollingsworth has. Mm -hmm. But I think the primary reason that I can tell you is that, um, you know, I care about the people in my district. I've been here for over 30 years. I know them. As I said, they're my friends. They're my family. They're my neighbors. They're my community. I care about them. I'm going to listen to them, you know, regardless of whether or not, and you, you read it off my website, I mean, regardless of whether or not we agree on every single policy point, you know, the one thing that I will say about Hoosiers in the Ninth District and Hoosiers everywhere and people everywhere, by and large, is that, look, we care about each other. When you get down to the microcosmic level and you talk to people, you have one-on-one conversations, we care about our communities, our friends, our neighbors, our families. We want to make sure that we take care of each other. And it's just a matter of going and showing people, you know, knocking on as many doors as we got to knock on, having as many conversations as we need to have, whether those conversations are comfortable or uncomfortable, and saying, look, we're listening. You know, we are listening. I am listening. I care about you. Um, and I think that's what people really want in a representative. And I don't think they're getting that from Mr. Hollingsworth. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a conversation we're having with attorney Dan Cannon, a civil rights attorney who is throwing his hat into the congressional race for Indiana's 9th Congressional District. And uh, we're just sort of going through the preliminaries. I'm going to yield now to my colleague, Roberta Rodovich. Mr. Cannon, I wanted to ask, so how does your background as a civil rights lawyer, how does that position you to to do the campaigning and to reach out to people and to reach out to those constituent groups who might not necessarily feel as fervent (laughs) as some of us social activists might. How do you reach the middle? Um, Yeah, how do you reach the middle with a a social activist heart? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you know, look, in a lot of ways I've been reaching the middle um, and and all all parts uh, left and right, you know, Mm -hmm. for my entire career. Mm -hmm. You have to do that when you represent people, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and that's that's ultimately what I decided I wanted to do after I got out of law school was to represent people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I went to work right away doing that. And when you sign yourself up to do that, you got to take on everybody that's got 
a problem of some kind that you feel like you can solve, right? And that's not, you don't discriminate against somebody because of their political affiliation. They come to you and they say, I've got a problem. Can you solve it? And you look at it and you make the most honest assessment of the situation that you possibly can and say, yeah, I can solve it, um, you know, if that's in fact the case. Uh, and, and I don't see this, you know, I, don't, I don't see representing 700,000 people <laughs> to be a, a lot different from representing a single individual in that regard. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are big differences, but in the sense that, you know, you've got to um, represent the people and that means all the people. And it involves being very sensitive to their needs. Mm -hmm. It involves listening to them. It involves caring about them and then making an assessment of how you see things and then your, your, your best judgment doing what you think is right mm -hmm. uh, for the people that you represent. So I, th I think, you know, it's a long way to say, yeah, you know, I think no. my, my, my career as, mm -hmm. as, as a lawyer representing people mm -hmm. um, it has been a perfect preparation to, to being able to do this kind of work. Because I've had to learn how to listen to people. I've right. had to learn how to care about their problems and figure out creative solutions for them. Right. And it seems that we are getting um, numb with the number of um, stories and cases in the news of um, people being mistreated and abused and um, even killed by those who are supposed to be protecting yeah. them. Can, can you... Are you at liberty to share with us a little bit about how Mr. Leon Bracken's story, both advocating for him as a lawyer and not the details of the oh, case well, necessarily, yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but how that overall story of Leon Bracken's, that's um, it's an, an all too familiar story, it seems to us. And yeah. how, how does that charge you? How does that um, drive your interest to... Uh, um, solve problems, as yeah. you say. Yeah, I mean, you know, these those kinds of cases are why I got into to civil rights law to begin with. And I'll, I'll just give listeners some background on that one. You know, um, a lot of, of my work as a civil rights lawyer has been involved in what we call constitutional litigation, and, and sometimes that involves, um, you know, suing police officers for, for excessive force um, and, and uh, sometimes for in wrongful death cases. Um, in, in Leon Brackens' case, Leon was a guy that lived in, in southern Indiana, in the southern part, uh, close, to, close to where I live. Now I'm in New Albany. And he made the mistake of, and Leon's about, uh, Leon was, was a black guy. He um, had, you know, had lived in the district his whole life. He uh, was, had sickle cell anemia real bad. And, I mean, Leon weighed about 90 pounds, right? Um, and he made the mistake of uh, taking a ride to the store with somebody who he thought was a friend, a white woman, picked him up, and uh, he gets in the passenger seat, and they drive down the road a little ways, and they get pulled over. And uh, they get pulled over by, by a Jeffersonville police officer. And um, she decides, the driver decides, that she's gonna run, right? They pull over for a second, and she says, uh-oh, I've got warrants, I need to take off. And of course, Leon's in the passenger seat, and he doesn't know anything about this, doesn't know, you know, what's going on, just knows that now all of a sudden they're involved in this chase, a police chase, a real-life police chase, um, and he hasn't done anything wrong, and he doesn't want to be there, and he's essentially been kidnapped. Well, he gets on the phone with 911 and um, tells dispatch what's going on. Like, you know, look, I'm being, uh, I'm being held against my will. 
she's going to kill me. I need help. Um, so they go on this chase all the way into Kentucky, and it goes, uh, you know, miles and miles and takes about two hours from start to finish, right? And they finally, um, there's, they finally get pulled over out in the far reaches of Louisville, Kentucky, and there's about 20 police cars from three different um, organizations, three different agencies that have them stopped. And the police officers, you see it on the dash cam video, the police officers go, they surround the car, they go to the driver's side, they pull the white driver gingerly out of the car, and they lead her back to the squad car. Now over on Leon's side, there's a guy that's got a gun on him and they open up the door and he can't get out and he's got his hands in the air and you know of course there, there's a, a lot of benefit to if you're in the situation like that as you all probably know I haven't seen this in the news over and over and over again over the last couple of years um, there's a lot of benefit to leaving your hands in the air in a situation like that if you move your hands any place there's a very good chance you're gonna die and so Leon's got his hands in the air and so the police officers, four or five of these police officers, proceed to pull him out of the passenger side and slam him on the ground, slam him back up against the van, slam him on the ground again, and uh, kneel on his head and put the handcuffs on him. And so he's in rough shape. I mean, he's been essentially um, brutalized at this point. And, um, you know, Leon ultimately died very shortly thereafter, and we brought suit on, on behalf of his estate. Um, and, you know, being a civil rights lawyer uh, can oftentimes, I mean, we run into these kind of cases uh, quite a bit, you know, um, usually not quite so dramatic as when somebody has called 911 and, and asked, you know, and begged for their lives um, and then been treated like, you know, they were the actual perpetrator at the scene. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the kind of thing that, that we run into. And the justice system, the civil justice system is very unforgiving things like as, as you all know um, prosecutions after something like this are almost unheard of mm-hmm. right you know if they don't prosecute in a case like Tamir Rice they're not going to prosecute in something like this right um, but but uh, you know the civil justice system uh, for most of the country is not any more forgiving right um, they're willing to overlook you know uh, just about any kind of police misconduct as being a mistake or uh, just being something that uh, there's, there's a doctrine called qualified immunity that basically uh, gets them off the hook without having to, to pay anything, even when something egregiously wrong has, has gone on. And, and so, you know, the courts have been very willing over the last few decades to write blank checks to government actors, to police officers, to prisons, to, uh, you know, to, to jails, uh, to law enforcement of all kind. And um, it's just something that we fight against. And if there are not enough good people, you know, and I, I, I mean, I'm sort of fueled by, I think to get back to your original question, mm-hmm. and I'm fueled by the belief that if we are going to make any positive difference mm-hmm. in our existing systems, you know, there's two ways to do it. You can stand on the outside and push for change, and I think that that's got its benefits for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the infiltration method where mm-hmm. you get on the inside and mm-hmm. you become a lawyer or you become a judge right. or you become a politician, you become a member of Congress, mm-hmm. and you try to fix things from the inside out. Right. Um, and so that's what's driven most of my career uh, as an advocate, and, uh, and it's what's driving my, my political career. You know, a couple of Fridays back, just to pick up on that, our, our 
President Donald Trump was in Suffolk County, New York, addressing law enforcement. Now the infamous law and order speech where he says, um, you know, you put your hands on their head and you help them into the vehicle and they've just shot or murdered someone. I'm asking that you don't do that and just deal with them, basically. Um, say you're, you're successful in your bid. What do you communicate to our president about decorum and and the, ang- the angst of large communities of African-Americans and Latinos who feel their rights being thrown out the window? I don't know what can be communicated to the president, you know, in any sort of um, effective way mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to make him understand. I mean, if the, if the implication is that we're going to somehow make Donald Trump understand how damaging his rhetoric is, I don't know that that's possible. You know, uh, Congressional Black Caucus has tried to do it. The NAACP has tried to do it, right? You know, and, so, and, and, and lots and lots of other interest groups and individuals that have a whole lot more clout than I do have tried to convince them that, look, you know, this is actually really divisive. Um, it's really harmful uh, for large segments of the population. He does not seem to care. I think that the, the chief objective of anybody that gets elected to office this time around in 2018, anybody that holds office in the federal government now, right, um, should be to hold this executive branch accountable for their actions, right? Um, Not to try to correct their language, not to try to, uh, you know, change what's going on because I don't think that that's going to be very effective. We need accountability. We need real accountability. And the current Congress is simply not doing that. I, I agree with what you're saying, but but what does that real accountability look like? My my frustration is you see Congress now embedding language into legislation to prevent vetoes. Um, we see Congress trying to circumvent both on both sides of the aisle. But it, to me, we have the potential here of him um, driving back advances for people of America, those who've been, say, disenfranchised or underrepresented, just because he wants to have a campaign rally um, to to just ramp up the base. And, and my concern going forward is that, as well as overseas or domestically, something's going to be said that's going to really be hard to, to rein back in. So when you say accountable, holding the executive branch accountable, what ideas, if, as you watch TV and, and project yourself as a congressman, what goes through your mind to saying, well, if I were in Congress, this is what I would do? Yeah. I, I mean, I think you call out the, the sort of divisiveness and the lies as you see them, right, when they happen and in real time. You call them out for what they are. Mm-hmm. This is Donald Trump trying to pit us against each other, right? This is an old Republican trick. He's just carried it to the nth degree. It's an old right-wing populist trick, right? It's turn groups of people against each other, right? Turn the police against the African-American community. Turn, um, turn suburban America against refugees, right? Um, turn uh, Christians against Muslims, whatever you can do. I think we call it out for what it is at every possible turn. We say, look, you are trying to pit us against each other to take the focus off what's going on at the top. That's what it is. If you're looking at the bottom 50 percent 
and you're saying, you know what, I'm here I am in the bottom 50%, and my problem is actually the very bottom 10%, right? You know, it's my problem is with people um, that, that are easy targets for bullying, for minority groups, refugees, LGBT people, you know, um, what, what, what the, the sort of classic Reagan welfare queen, right, that idea. Um, you know, if, if that's, that's the con, is getting people to focus on that, that sort of bottom 10% or even your neighbor, right, to say, this is my problem, this is where my problem's coming from. And that way you don't look at that top 1% mm-hmm. and say, you know what, maybe the problem is really up there. Yeah, and my, my final remark on that is you mentioned the, the Congressional Black Caucus sort of leading the charge against... Uh, those type of divisive rhetoric statements, rhetorical statements. I have to say that it should not and does not solely rest on their shoulders. And I think it takes more impact uh, if someone who uh, were not of that ethnicity to speak out and to hold the president accountable. I I have to say um, uh, there are some in his home party who have found sort of that stiff backbone to now resist. John McCain has won the respect of so many people. Um, I guess Lindsey Graham has won the respect of so many people. But but we need others um, on the Democratic side, it, what have you, to stand up and say, Mr. President, you must be held accountable, or, or I'm sure there's some things that can be done. I haven't read up on the Constitution. Maybe I will, but there, <laughs> there has to be. Aside, I mean, everybody's talking about uh, the, the act where Mike Pence can walk over somewhere and hand a note saying, I think the president's not feeling well and I think he can't discharge his duties as president, so I think we need to suspend him. Whatever, there's an article somewhere that he can uh, take advantage of. And speaking of Mike Pence, uh, any any passing comment on, on this New York Times, I guess, reported story that he's already has an exploratory committee out looking at uh, uh, his chances in 2020. Uh, if, if for some chance the president decides not to run, or maybe the president's not able to run, but but it doesn't want to run in 2020. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting, right? <laughs> I mean, I think it's an acknowledgement that, uh, you know, I think it's sort of a tacit acknowledgement by the people up in the uh, administration that this is a sinking ship. Um, and let, let's figure out how to get off of it before we go down with it. And we, you know, we've seen signs of that from the, from the very beginning. It's just been um, sinking a whole lot longer than a lot of us thought it would or uh, would, would like for it to. I think going back to your, your prior comment, though, I mean, I agree with you um, that, that it's good for these legislators to say, you know, like Jeff Flake came out with, uh, you know, the, the big statement, um, about you know condemning the president, and that's great. But do it with your voting record too. You know, do it with your vote. Do it with actions, and not just rhetoric. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really really important on both sides of the aisle. And right now, with a Republican-dominated Congress, what we see is no meaningful accountability. They're just not doing it. They're not willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And nothing getting done. Yes, sir. Um, you know, they're going on a break now, the August break, I guess, to go back to their constituencies to report this is what we had hoped to do rather than this is what we've done. I, I yield back to, to Roberta. Roberta. Well, getting back to your campaign, do you want to share with the listeners some of your campaign policies that you seek to pursue? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a progressive campaign. And mm-hmm. what we set out to do was run uh, a very unashamed, uh, progressive 
platform to mm -hmm. give people a positive agenda for moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I think whatever you think about the Trump campaign or the Sanders campaign um, in 2016, you know, the success of those two campaigns, I think, owes itself to the sort of same central idea, which is that um, Trump and Sanders were offering people a direction. Right. Sanders said, well, let's go forward. We're going to go, you're going to, we're going to boldly march forward and here's how we're going to do it. And Trump said, let's go backward, right? Let's make America great again and go backward in time. And, but that's a bold path. And he said, that's, that's, you know, and, 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 and I think that spoke to a lot of people that are sort of feeling stagnant and they're feeling stuck in one place. And it's like, we got to move a direction. I don't care what it is, whether it's forward or backward, we got to move. Um, and I think that's really what we on the left have to do, we progressives have to do for people, is to say, look, we're giving you a direction. Uh, we advocate universal health care, affordable universal health care, uh, that will ultimately result in a single-payer system in the United States, which we're long overdue for. Uh, a, you know, a, a, a bold plan for the environment, right, to make sure that we have the protections in place that we need to have to ensure that we have clean air, clean water, clean soil, and a planet that's not too hot to exist on for the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, it's wages. It's wage reform. It's, it's bringing us to a bare minimum of a $15 an hour minimum wage, which has been overdue for decades now. Um, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's paid family and medical leave, which I think we're also uh, way overdue for. These are things that we're talking, when we talk about these things, you know, it sounds radical um, in some ways to some ears, right? It sounds radical uh, to Americans. Uh, but in fact, these are things that, you know, are, are, have been um, taken for granted by other industrialized nations for a really long time. And in fact, when we talk about something like tuition-free public education, mm -hmm. which the Sanders campaign talked about, and everybody thought that, you know, when he first started talking about it, we thought he was a lunatic. But Tennessee just did it, mm -hmm. right? New York's got it. Mm -hmm. Parts of California have got tuition-free public education, public, you know, uh, universities. And, and that's something, so it shows that these things are not, you know, pie-in-the-sky ideals. It shows that they are attainable. And single-payer is another good example where you've got more and more sort of, quote-unquote, mainstream Democrats talking about we can really do this. We can really do something with our health care system. And we know that we can't sustain the current system that we've got, right? And it's not just because of Obamacare. It's because it's an unsustainable health care system. It's mm -hmm. because, you know, it's been ruined by the for-profit industry. And as a result, we've got, you know, 500,000 bankruptcies a year. Uh, and somewhere on the order of thirty to 40,000 deaths because people simply can't pay medical bills, right? right. Um, and, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that, agree, that, that would disagree with the idea that that's unsustainable and it's inhumane. And these are the kind of ideas that we've got to start pushing and we've got to start pushing hard right. um, in, in, in districts where maybe we haven't talked about them before. And the Ninth District is like that. You know, we haven't really try to um, come forward with a bold, progressive plan for people in Indiana uh, ever before. And, and I, think that, uh, I think that voters are ready for it. I think they're going to be receptive to it. Uh, and I think we're going to win. So that was my follow-up question. Is this bold, uh, unabashedly, unapologetically um, progressive platform, how does that 
at the ninth at the at the local level, the ninth district level? How does that support this larger uh, federal um, and even global landscape that we're all navigating now? Yeah, I, I mean, we are we are you know, in terms of the federal government, you mm-hmm. know, we're one piece mm-hmm. of a much larger uh, puzzle, right? You know, so so the ninth district, you know, the way we, I mean. So if we have, if we flip this district blue and we have somebody go up to the House of Representatives that will not only hold, hold the executive branch accountable, but has the willingness to move the country forward, has a positive agenda for the, for, for, uh, the country, I mean, I think eventually you know, uh, everyone in the country will get the idea like, okay, this is the way forward. And you got to either, you know, commit to going forward or if you're just going to leave us in a stagnant place, then then you know get off. And, and we and, and I think that um, there, there will you know, ultimately uh, what we're going to end up with is um, you know we're going to end up in a better place, right? By electing people. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Here, no, right? I think you are, and, yeah. and I and I think I'm waiting for a bold statement from you. Are you the candidate that will turn this state blue? No, it turned the whole state blue. You know, look, I mean, I think that there is no one candidate that's going to yeah. turn a state blue. Yeah. Okay. There's yeah. no one candidate. And then to go back to your original question, there's no yeah. one candidate or one race that's going to push the country, you know, forward in the right direction that it, that it needs to go. It's mm-hmm. got to be done piece by piece by right. piece by piece. It happens yeah. at the local level. Right. Um, and so every last one of these races in 2018 is going to be really, really important. Um, and, and it's going to be important that we vote people in who are willing to move us forward and go in the right direction. I, you know, and I, I think we can do it. I think people are ready for it. The energy in the district is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the folks that, that, you know, aren't quite sure if a progressive agenda is what they want. Again, they want to be listened to, mm-hmm. and they want somebody to care about them. And again, if you sure. go out there and say, look, we care about you, let us take this caring, that is this sort of uh, collective caring that we have for our communities, for our neighbors, for our friends, and turn it into good policy for you. Yeah. Give us a chance to do that. Right. Um, I, I think that people are ready for it. If you've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to a conversation with uh, Indiana Ninth. Congressional District Candidate Dan Cannon, Attorney Dan Cannon. Um, And I I wanted to sort of switch gears to a reality that we in Indiana, probably not just germane to Indiana, but somehow we found ourselves in the midst of uh, a central and and vast southern Indiana opioid addiction, uh, which is not getting better. Uh, We've seen legislation as far as uh, clean needles to tougher enforcement to whatever, but the problem's not going away. And I believe in the 9th District, um, you're seeing evidence of that as, as we are in the periphery of Monroe County. And even we've had, I think, during the course of two weeks, 20-plus overdoses of chemical substances, not all just germane to opioids. In your platform, you do advocate for the removal of marijuana as a Schedule One substance under the Controlled Substance Act and ultimately the cessation of all federal criminal regulation of cannabis. What do you say to those that say that that may be counterproductive? In terms of counterproductive to the opioid crisis? Uh, contributing both to if, if you remove all laws governing the use and um, perhaps sale of 
marijuana. Yeah, yeah. And no, then I'm, juxtaposed to the opi- opioid addiction issues that we have now that are getting worse. Yeah. So, so I think what you're asking is whether or not this is, you you want me to address the people that um, still believe that marijuana is a gateway drug and that is going to lead to further opioid abuse. Mm -hmm. And I would invite anybody who still believes that um, 80 year old lie to look at the data involved in this, because we now have meaningful data from states that allow medical cannabis and even states that allow recreational cannabis. And what we know from those states is that marijuana, uh, contrary to the sort of reefer madness idea that marijuana is a gateway drug, it's in fact an exit drug. When you have, um, when you have access to regulated, taxed, safe medical cannabis, right, it reduces opioid use. Every place that, that people have access to this, uh, this has become almost a universal truth at this point, that it reduces opioid abuse. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't say all that to say that's a panacea for the opioid epidemic, because it certainly is not. We've got to tackle that uh, on multiple levels. And, and one of the big things is, is making sure that people have adequate access to health care, including mental health, health services. Um, particularly in rural areas. And we've got to make sure that those services are available and affordable to people to, to where the, that, you know, when they start to experience a problem, early intervention is key, right? So when they start to experience a problem, they can go and seek help without worrying that they're going to go bankrupt, right? That without worrying that they're going to be paying those bills off for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. right? So, so I mean, ad- adequate access to, to health care is an important component of it, but I think cannabis comes into play um, as yet another method for attacking the opioid epidemic. We've, we've got to attack it on multiple levels for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and part of it goes back to, too, if you are, are giving people meaningful jobs, if you're giving them meaningful access to health care, if you're ensuring that they have safe and secure environments, and, and not just from the sort of clean environment uh, perspective, but also safe housing, the kinds of things that, that the federal government is uniquely situated to um, assist in providing to people uh, who need it the most, then I think that also reduces uh, opioid dependence. Well, we want to thank civil rights attorney uh, Dan Cannon for coming on to discuss his candidacy for the Indiana 9th Congressional District. Uh, To learn more about uh, attorney Cannon, uh, please visit his Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Dan Cannon. And I may also add that uh, there is a Dan Cannon for Congress website, which is Cannon for Indiana, all one word, dot com. Yes, sir. You got it. And again, we we do want to thank you for coming on and uh, Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address once again is bringiton at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from Juanita's Restaurant, located at 620 West Kirkwood. Juanita's Restaurant is a family-owned and operated business that brings Mexican cuisine to Bloomington, Indiana. Catering service is also available. More at 812-339-2340 or online at juanitas.com.
Support for WFHB also is brought to you by Mother Bear's Pizza. Located on the east side of Bloomington at 1428 East 3rd Street and on the west side at 2980 West Whitehall Crossing Boulevard. Serving pizza, subs, pasta, wings, beer, and wine since 1973. Hours and more information at motherbears.com.
You just heard Another Day in Paradise by the gospel group Commissioned. Two of the members featured in the 1994 release are Fred Hammond and Marvin Sapp. This is Bringing On the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and Beyond. Are you a tweeter? Are you a tweeter, Roberta? I am a tweeter. Are you a tweeter? Are you a tweeter, David? No, I'm not. Okay, we're going <laughs> to you're fighting to follow the WFHB News Twitter account, we're going to teach David how to do this. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to Twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit WFHB's news website at WFHB.org news. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB page, go to facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB news website at wfhb.org slash news. And again, bring it on. Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 and live on the web at wfhb.org. And once again, for bringing on, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Roberta Radovich. And at the top of the hour, we shared that David Hummins, no stranger to Bring It On, was coming on to share some exciting news about an upcoming event of interest for all communities in Bloomington. The Jimmy Ross Memorial Fish Fry will be held this coming Friday from 4.30 to 7 p.m. along the West Concourse of the IU Memorial Football Stadium. Just ignore all the construction. They're, they're going to have it there. It's, it's going to be wonderful. David joins us now to share more particulars and some insights into the life of Dr. Jimmy Ross. David, welcome back to Bring It On. Well, thank you for, for having me. And uh, every year this time, I, uh, if, a sure sign of it being August, a sure sign that the, the, the first semester is about to start, fall semester is about to start, is the Jimmy Ross Memorial Annual Fish Fry. And... What year? Um, what year is this for for this event? Do you you know? know, I don't know. I think it's around thirty five, uh, but I'm not sure. We talk about that. that the, actually, the fish fry, which is uh, sponsored by the Northside Exchange Club in Bloomington, which has been around, a service organization, mm-hmm. which has been around a long time, had a fish fry for a number of years. I see. And, and as you know, 
oh, I don't know how many years ago that's been now, what, 14, 15 14, years ago yeah, since yeah. Jimmy passed, yeah. uh, we decided to, to name the fish fry after Jimmy, and that's why we call it the Jimmy Ross Memorial Annual Fish Fry. Jimmy, in addition to uh, being uh, a higher education administrator here at IU and known locally and nationally, uh, was also a long-standing member of the, the Exchange Club and mm-hmm. was and was very active uh, for years. In fact, he was one of the ones that brought me on back in 1979. Oh, okay. And so, uh, but he is always he is always giving service and unselfishly to the community and more specifically to youth. All right. Uh, as you know. Uh, Jimmy was uh, Jimmy has a doctorate from Indiana University in higher education. Mm-hmm. He also has a master's degree from the University of uh, Illinois, and he grew up in Arkansas and was educated in, at the uh, University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. Mm-hmm. And so he has a he has a uh, a long uh, he has he has a long uh, area of work mm-hmm. over the years, but his dedication. For all these years, he was born in El Dorado, Arkansas, has always been to youth and always been to really underrepresented youth. Right. You know, I think back of all the students that he helped as director of financial aid, and I think back, uh, there's one um, uh, prominent alum uh, that, that knows you very well, David, um, uh, thinking of Tavis Smiley, who was mm-hmm. who a direct beneficiary of Jimmy's good uh, efforts to, to find uh, financial aid for him when he was a freshman, uh, being a squatter in a in a in a, <laughs> in a dorm lounge, and and if he were sitting here, he'd laugh and say, "Yeah, that's absolutely right." But uh, why don't you tell us that story about Jimmy and how he helped him, how you both helped him? Well, if if you recall, uh, there was a time when I was uh, an assistant bursar at IU, an administrator. And I worked with Bill Walters, who was a bursar, who was someone that you talk about a people person, someone that was dedicated to students, even though he was the bursar. Mm-hmm. And so I worked with Bill a lot on uh, students that were having issues that for some reason we couldn't resolve. Jimmy Ross was the associate director and then subsequently the director of financial aid for years. And so we all got together and collaborated, sometimes face to face, to try to solve a student's problems. Uh, computerization was not quite here yet. Right. And so we did have ways of getting most students through, you know, just through a system, but we had to sit and collaborate, and we actually talked face-to-face to each other about out-of-the-box kinds of problems, and, and Tavis was an out-of-the-box kind of problem. Tavis was educated. Tavis was sharp, but he came from a large family. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think he was living around uh, Peru, up around Grissom Air Force Base, because I think his father was in the military. And Tavis had some family issues, and the result of which was that the, we couldn't get access to his records. So he could not supply his records for what now is a FAFSA form. It was called something else then. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, academically he was sound, but they couldn't get access to his records. So the thing was, how was that going to happen? And through uh, collaboration, and I met Tavis uh, because one day, in fact, I met him two or three times before I actually stopped (laughs) and said, well, you know, maybe we have something here because he was always articulate. Mm -hmm. He was always dedicated to a cause. But it was just things the system couldn't handle. Right, right. And through the and through Bill Walters and through Jimmy Ross and through myself and perhaps a couple of administrators in in, in, in Brian Hall, we just worked over a span of time and were able to legitimately work out a way 
to sort of, you know, get the things that we needed to get Tavis enrolled. And that took that took quite a bit of uh, time. We had housing issues. We had financial aid issues. Uh, Tavis was always very motivated, as you right, know. Right. And, yes, there were nights where he had to sleep somewhere before we arranged housing and all that. And, in fact, after we did get him in, he worked for me mm-hmm. uh, for a while, and that always went along. So I had an ongoing relationship with Tavis over the years. Mm-hmm. And still do do mm-hmm. to uh, this day. Um, and and I know Roberta, uh, Dr. Ross, preceded your tenure at Indiana University, and, and you may hear us sort of speak of Jimmy as – uh, as a long, fr- long-time friend, in which he was. Um, uh, some unique things about him is um, when people would talk to him on the phone, you heard enthusiasm, optimism, energy, uh, this cordial sort of Southern type of comfort coming over the lines, you know, and that was Jimmy. And little did you know, um, and many did not know, that, that he was confined to a wheelchair, uh, having um, suffered from some health concerns. But the, the manner by which a lot of administrators at IU and friends would get counsel from Jimmy was you would go to his back door at his house on Indiana Avenue. You would knock on the door. You would hear a friendly voice saying, come in. The door was never locked most of the times. You go in, and, he, and you announce who you are, and he would say, come on in, come on in, have a seat, have your seat. And the first thing he'd say was, are you hungry? Right. <laughs> are you hungry? He'd say, no, no, Jimmy, just want to come by and chat. And what my, you know, it was over your lunch hour, and I'll confess to that, one, you know, it was the one hour, and that was all, no. <laughs> we would talk about, you know, issues or challenges you may have maybe confronting uh, as an administrator or as a student um, or whatever. And one of the unique things, and David, you can attest to this, that phone might ring, and you would never know who was on the other end. It might be a former alum, it might be a, an alum, rather, who was playing pro sports. It, it might be... Um, an administrator across the country. It might be the mother of Isaiah Thomas. You never knew who was on the other line. And that spoke volumes about um, Jimmy's uh, uh, just congenial spirit. Um, he was a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. A, little, a little background here. Jimmy was quite an athlete in college. He was a football player. Mm-hmm. He tried out for the NFL for a team okay. at, at one point in time, and he didn't make that, but then he, he went on. And he ultimately got a master's degree from the University of Illinois, and Mm -hmm. he came here, and that's about the time I met him. Well, actually, he came here in 68. I didn't meet him until probably 71. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, worked in the financial aid office as a student while he was working on another advanced degree. But Jimmy had that Southern hospitality. Yes, he did. Jimmy brought you in your house. Uh, He lived very close to campus. Right. And you could drop in when you wanted to, whether you were an undergraduate or graduate student. Many athletes at IU, or more specifically, basketball players at IU, That's right. would go over to Jimmy's, especially when they were in Bobby Knight's doghouse. That's right. And uh, Jimmy would build them back up. And, and his and, favorite, favorite phrase was, give them your mind, but not, well, give them your body, but not your mind. Right, right. And, uh, and and so many people got through IU because of Jimmy, and all of those people were very actually appreciative of the experience they mm-hmm. had after the, you know after the fact, and would still come back and support IU. Well, well, well one more story because I, I do want to jump into uh, the, the logistics of this event. Uh, when I was a student, uh, an undergrad student, there was a protest march, it was, and back then students would have peaceful protests. I mean, it, it, we would take to Dunmetal, we would take to the gates of Bryan Hall, whatever. I mean, we would protest and, and make our voices heard. Mm-hmm. 
And there was something about, I guess, uh, the rising cost of tuition and, and whatever, but there was this sort of march and people were walking. I saw all these people walk and say, hey, what's going on? And someone said, hey, get in line. We're going over to, to the financial aid. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was this, this mass of humanity in front of the steps of uh, where the financial aid office was. And my first time seeing Dr. Ross or Jimmy Ross was when he came outside and just raised his hand and said, listen, everyone, we have heard and we're going to work through this, you know, the, the ultimate diplomat. And uh, just quelled the crowd and promised action and did deliver. Uh, so, I mean, he was that type of person. And, and not only that, um, some people may not know is Jimmy was a major lobbyist on his own and with, with organizations and fighting for underrepresented students uh, at the state level and also the federal level. Mm-hmm. First generation students, did, it didn't matter really whether they were black or they were white or, uh, or you know, what their ethnicity was. He, he fought and I know at times he really engaged students to go fight for you know, some of their own causes. He was very much a politician. Well, I'm getting hungry. Okay. Friday there's gonna be some fish. And if it's the same as year after year, I have my, my standing order for some fish. And the, the fish meal consists of some delicious fish, which is wonderfully prepared. And you have some wonderful sides. And I always sort of make a beeline to the pecan pie slice. Uh, I have to admit, that's my, that's my Achilles <laughs> tendon there, my Achilles heel. I, I've got to go and get uh, my, my slice of pecan pie, <clears throat> maybe two. But anyway, give us a logistics, uh, David, of, of what's going to go on this Friday. Well, first of all, the fish fry attracts uh, uh, really a, a cross-section of, of Bloomington. You get some students there, you get kids there, you get teenagers there, you get older people, you get younger people. Many, many people in the community knew Jimmy, but they also they have the experience of coming to the fish fry every year. It's always, the uh, I think, the second Friday in August. Mm-hmm. And it's always on the West Concourse of the stadium. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a minute now. Uh, they're filling in the south end of the stadium and expanding <laughs> the stadium. So how are we going to do that? Well, let me simply say the West Concourse of the stadium will have plenty of room for the fish fry. There may be construction materials on the end, but we did this for the North Concourse of the stadium a few right, years right. ago. And everything went well. Uh There'll be all the fish that you can eat. There'll be uh, side dishes that uh, we used to have baked beans, coleslaw, many other, many other items. We have uh, Coca-Cola uh, provides products. We'll have, we'll have pies and, and those kind of things. But we really want you to come out to the fi- and support this cause. Cost? Uh, cost is $10 for adults and children 12 and under $3. And the proceeds go to? And the proceeds go to the Jimmy Ross Endowment Fund for Diversity uh, Initiatives, which is administered by the Indiana University Foundation. And we we just wanted to afford David some time to come on. Uh, David's always been a longtime contributor to bring it on. He's come on for many different issues uh, and topics. And this one I know is dear to his heart because he was such a dear friend of Jimmy Ross's. And um, Roberta, thank you so much for for all of your wonderful uh, just chiming in there. But... uh, (laughs) We just wanted to invite David on. Um, David, we have two seconds. Well, uh, David, thank you for coming on uh, today. And I know we're kind of pressed for time and that we're at the top of the hour. And we'll see you at the Fish Fry on Friday. 4.30 to 7 o'clock. We want to thank David Hummins. I'm sorry. 
Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. We, thank you. Thank you, David. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David, uh, for coming on and sharing with us uh, a little bit about Jimmy Ross's uh, legacy and life and his contributions to Indiana University. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing everybody out at the football stadium. Again, it goes from 4.30 to 7 p.m. Uh, you can contact David Hummins if you want uh, to grab that ticket uh, at D. Hummins, so that's D H U M M O N S at indiana.edu. D Hummins at indiana.edu. And we would be remiss if I did not say that Dr. Ross was a true friend to one of your mentors, uh, Ms. Rodovich, uh, Dr. Charlie Nelms. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were like brothers. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you have an event that you want us to know about, and if you have an, an opinion of current black issues, send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Roberta Radovich, and you're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org. We want to thank civil rights attorney, Dan Cannon for coming on to discuss his candidacy for Indiana's 9th Congressional District. To learn more about him, visit his uh, website at cannonforcongress.com and uh, learn about him. There's a Facebook site, facebook.com slash Dan Cannon. Facebook.com slash Dan Cannon. Our show's executive producer is my brother to my right here, Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our news editor is Michael Nolan, and our board engineer is Jim Thrasher. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For, w- for WFHB, I'm